1: Hey, how's it going? It's Samson Folk, and you're listening to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm here with a dear, dear friend of mine, the arbiter of all things deep dive. He bought the scuba equipment because he's been diving so deep so often this year. Renting was just, it was far too expensive. And as we know, he has a proclivity for uh, deep dives. Louis Assman, who is a fantastic writer. I read all of his stuff, if I can, and if I can't. I, uh, I guess I make time down the road. But Lewis, we're here to talk about some basketball in Toronto, Tampa Bay, and abroad. How are you doing, man?
0: Always so good when I'm talking to you. Your intros are always, and I've heard other people say this, if I'm having a bad day, I'll try to get on your pod just because your intros are always so kind.
1: I think that's, you try and butter people up. I don't have to with you, but you, you butter them up. You say, hey, wow, you're so great. I, you're, you're awesome. And then they give you the good stuff. Because <laughs> I don't, I want to hear about personal little factoids about the person, not about what they want to talk about. The Raptors, boring. I'll, I'll ask Nick <laughs> Nurse or somebody like that. I want to hear about what's going on with you. So what's going on people, with you, Lewis?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a people business. At the end of the day, you know, uh, things are good. Things are good. Lots of lots of basketball to talk about. Every game seems to be um, unexpected at this point. So you know, tons of content to write about.
1: And so. When something is unexpected, does that mean that there's a bunch of different outcomes? Or are you looking
0: at it like there's a lucky or an unlucky outcome? What's your thought hey, on that? Nice transition. Uh, well, when things are unexpected, it means I have to go into a Because I always have a bunch of pieces on the go. I have to go into all my drafts and change all the narratives. Because if the numbers change, the, the takeaway has to change. So that's frustrating when things don't go to go to plan. But yeah, let's talk about that luck, unluck thing. So first of all, let me ask you before we start: if you were to hear, you know, a team complaining, "Oh, we've we've been super unlucky to start this season," what would you think? Would you say that's a reasonable takeaway when it comes to basketball? It
1: can be. Totally, it can. There are some things that you can control. There are some things that you can be better at. But as we've seen, the Raptors are a high variance team who had some close games. And if anybody listened to the reaction podcast, typically at the end of it, it's just kind of me raising my arms up and saying, them's the bricks. Sometimes you get good looks, you don't hit them. The Raptors, as you note in your piece regarding luck, they have those two games against Portland and Golden State. If they win those, the imbalance of expected wins versus, you know, what they actually have is no longer out of whack. It's, more so in the correct place by the numbers, I think it's acceptable to look at luck sometimes. Although it's the other games where the Raptors have huge droughts and then lose by 15 after being up 10, that if somebody said, oh, we just missed threes, you're playing a style where you have to, give yourself up to variance sometimes if you're going to shoot that many threes. So I don't think you can say luck there, but the late game operating the clutch time statistics, I think you can say it there and it's not too much
0: of a stretch. I completely agree with you. And I think that's a really valuable way to think about it is, you know, where does luck impact the game? And that's sort of what I tried to do in the piece. So I looked at it in terms of in three ways. So one um, Toronto's net rating versus their actual record. Um, and Cleaning the Glass has this excellent little tool that lets you look at what your net rating or what your rating should say your record is and then what your record actually is. So, you know, that that swing of two games, eight games, whatever. Uh, so that that's nifty to look at. And the Raptors was very large. And so then why? Like what parts of the game? And as you mentioned, clutch shooting, big part of it. Uh, one that Nick Nurse would... Talk a lot about that I'm actually much more skeptical of is free throws. Toronto has the second largest free throw gap in the league behind Phoenix. Uh, they've attempted 76 fewer than their opponents. But when you're throwing up the most threes in the game and you really aren't getting to the rim a lot, uh it makes sense. You're getting a lot fewer free throws. They play a very aggressive defensive style, you know, lots of aggression, which lends itself to more fouls. So it makes some sense. They'd have fewer free throws. So I agree with you, you know, where does luck impact? Where doesn't it? Um, I was fascinated though, talking to a couple guys on the team, you know, Nick nurse and Fred, they were, I thought they'd be like, Oh no, it's just our play. It's just our play. They were all in on the luck. They were, they really believe that luck has impacted this season.
1: As you, as you spell it in the piece as well. There's quite a bit of it going on league-wide. The variance has swung, or controllables, or luck, whatever term you want to use. It has swung some records, as it will every season and maybe a bit more extreme early on. The Raptors this season, I think, took that little extra step past it's the early season. The struggles stayed a little bit later than most people were comfortable with. I think a lot of the people who believed, you know what, I'm with this team. They're a good team, and I'll believe they're a good team. That wavered a little bit six games into the season when the Nuggets are turning the corner, for example. The Warriors are turning the the corner, for example. And the Raptors mm-hmm. are still struggling. When you were digging into it, because it went back a few seasons, your numbers, did you find that three-point, like the amount of three-point attempts played into those types of teams? Did you come across that, or are teams that shoot at the rim a lot more less likely to face those types of swings in expected wins and
0: stuff like that? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, So just to go through the list here, I made a list of the 10, you know, luckiest or least lucky teams since 2003. Um, It included the Utah Jazz 0506, the Dallas Mavericks 0708, um the golden state warriors in their 72 win season they weren't on the chart but they were just off of it uh statistically so all of these teams were either it, it ranged from about 6 losses more than you'd expect from their net rating to 9 losses to 9 wins more and uh i did not check whether they were high variance teams that is a great question but i mean i know some of these teams um you have some process era. No, that's pre-process. Uh, I actually don't know. I like the Detroit Pistons 0304 were not a high three-point shooting team. The Cavs from 1718 were. Um, mm-hmm. The Orlando Magic 1011 were a really high three-point shooting team. That was the Richard Lewis, Hito Turkoglu team. So I mean, just off the top of my head, Utah Jazz 1819. I would say yes. I would say three-point shooting variants seems to correlate without looking at the numbers, just based on, you know, what I remember from these teams.
1: The four teams you listed, I think, definitely speaks to that. Okay, so that's, that's very interesting. But it appears the turn is coming now, even though they just lost to Indiana yesterday, wherein Malcolm Brogdon, Miles Turner, that pick-and-roll action kind of shredded the Raptors. Fred Van Vliet had an incredible game on Malcolm Brogdon in the first of the two-game series. And Kyle Lowry got a little bit of time on Brogdon in this past game. The drop-off was significant. And that's not to say Kyle Lowry is bad, but he did have a bad performance. Fred VanVleet, when you take into account what he's doing defensively, game in and game out, and the work he puts in offensively, is he starting to look like the Raptors' lone all-star this year?
0: Yeah. Uh I mean, I think Pascal Siakam doesn't have to do a ton to get there just because of his reputation, because he's all NBA second team. Uh, he probably, if he just has a couple 30-point games, will get there, even if he's not Toronto's best player. But, you know, to me, see, Van Vliet has been Toronto's best player this season, most consistent offensive player, phenomenal defensively, Uh He's been unbelievable. I think he's taken that all-star step. And if we look at his numbers, um, you know, which is which is fairly normal for, <laughs> for an all-star, they're all-star numbers, right? Like the guy is averaging 20 points, six assists, five rebounds, uh, great, great three-point shooting, you know, steal and a half a game. That is borderline all-star numbers. Like when Goran Dragic got in, he had those numbers. Uh, He's certainly not a starter like Siakam was last year, but I think this is his year. As you say, Pascal, maybe it's just a few
1: games away from from him to be able to get back into that type of status. I wrote that huge piece on, you know, why he's headed back towards All-NBA, and then suddenly teams start playing a bunch of zone. The post-up that was the lifeblood of his resurgence now kind of phased out of games. He just has to work in the middle of the floor, not having a lot of success. But Fred keeps on working. And so this is where I have to eat crow, perhaps a little bit. Yes. I have always... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. There is... I always thought Fred could come in and shoot the mid-range jumper. I thought, you know, I've I've said for a long time that he has great fundamental... Jump shooting mechanics. He should be able to apply them in a bunch of different spots on the floor. His pull up three point shot, I think, will continue to improve until he's like 32, 33. That wouldn't surprise me either. But I have been low on the playmaking. And I still am low on a certain type of playmaking. As you know, I'm not much of a believer in Fred's ability to create looks at the rim for his teammates. And not, not a big fan of how he operates near the rim. That's all fine. But I have underrated to some degree his ability to playmake the full game. And I understand why people might get a little bit upset at over-dribbling at times. But I think increasingly he's finding the, he's walking the tightrope that is probing and over-dribbling and doing a better and better job of it. And he's showing a ceiling as a playmaker that I, in particular, never saw. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on his job as a playmaker this year. Because the burden has been heavier than ever.
0: Yeah, I think he's been awesome. Uh, I agree with you that it was something that needed work. Um, But I think he has improved. And yes, his ability to create two-point shots for teammates – Remains um, sort of a weak point in his creation game. But what he has, you know, changed is he's become one of the premier uh, creators of three point shots for teammates like ever. I mean, it's unreal. He's creating 10 three point attempts per game for teammates, which is the most a Raptor has ever done. And on those shots, teammates are shooting 40.8%. That's unbelievable. And just to compare that to two of the, you know, two of the elite three-point creators for teammates, Luka Doncic this year is creating a 10.6 three-point attempts for teammates off of his passes. They're shooting 35.8, so about the same number, shooting much, much worse off of his passes. And LeBron James, considered you know the greatest of all time at creating threes for teammates, is creating just 8.2 threes for teammates, and they're shooting 40.1. So the same quality of looks, but actually creating fewer of them than Fred Van Vliet. So, I mean, this is something that I just thought of right now. Um, I am going to write a piece about this immediately because this is fascinating. But, yeah, I mean, if he is one of the greatest creators of three-point shots in the league which he has been then his ability to create twos is a little less important interesting
1: i was gonna ask because you had those numbers i was like are we blowing up a piece you have (laughs) right (laughs) now. no i
0: just thought of this right now
1: (laughs) okay that's one thing make sure you do because using the term greatest i think relative to how many threes the team shoots probably have to calibrate something in there but as you say and especially above the break looks, last year, I, he was top 15, I believe. There was that metric that, well, not a metric. Somebody counted it out, and Fred was popping up on those tables where you're looking at guys who create just buckets and buckets of three-pointers The LeBron's, Lucas, DeMar is usually on there, especially with how he plays with the Spurs, and they surround him with shooting. But Fred, and at a higher clip than Kyle, Obviously, Kyle, a different type of playmaker than Fred. But Fred, I mean, just to be more specific, is his ability to get downhill a little bit and take the defense's rotation in stride and create either to above the break or to the corner. That's not a ton of options, but he's so good at manipulating the defender who's trying to cut the difference between those two spots on the floor That he is creating, as you say, around 40% looks at a very high clip. The Raptors have been, you know, feast or famine. And Fred's type of creation is a big part of that. But there's a reason that you see when the Raptors are rolling, it's when Fred is bouncing in and out of the paint, spraying the ball to the opposite side of the floor, and then relocating in transition, getting out to a spot, relocating in the half court, hitting his own threes. And I think that's really cool that he's become symbiotic with that type of offense. And it, you know, a nod to the Raptors playing to their personnel a little bit. And I think it's just on Pascal Siakam and Kyle Lowry to bring their best version of themselves forward, because I think Fred has things to improve, but in his current role, I think he's kicking major ass. And I, as much as I want him to create two point looks, that's, they're supposed to have Pascal and Kyle for that. And Fred will do it sparingly and hopefully more going forward. But so far, he's, he's really impressed me. He's been fantastic.
0: I agree. Uh, and all of the talk of, you know, you can't have Fred on ball. He dribbles the air out of the ball. I just, I won't hear that this year. I mean, last year, to some extent, that was true. But this year, he's been unreal on ball. And he, he does over-dribble sometimes. Um, if we're talking about the two-point looks, though, I did want to mention Uh, statistically, he's not so much better this year than last, creating about the same number. Guys are actually shooting a little worse on those two-point looks um, for Fred than they were last year. But just film-wise, he's actually done a couple things I haven't seen from him in the past. So throwing that quick bounce pass into space for a roller Something Kyle does all the time, one of the best at. I've seen Fred do that a few times to Chris Boucher, letting him get ahead of steam before he even collects the ball so that he just is one, two strides in for a shot at the rim. Um, I've seen him do that. It's really cool. That's a great look that I haven't seen before. You know, he picks up those skills. And so, you know, as he improves on that this year, maybe you won't see it in the numbers, but hopefully next year um, that will reflect itself in how guys shoot both qualitatively and quantitatively off of Van Fleet passes from two.
1: Just with his own ability to shoot in the mid range, his jump stops, there's been an uptick. I I don't have the numbers, but of pass fakes that he's used. I don't, I don't oh, yeah. know if you're not seeing that as well. So just overall the manipulation and comfort in the middle of the floor. And I think he has been great.
0: Man, yes. He's been faking dudes out looking across to the, you know, the elbow extended and hitting to the corner and, he, he also had someone bite on a pump fake from like six feet behind the line last night. That was unbelievable and deservedly so because he's going to shoot from there, you know, like, and this is actually a good transition. Cause I wanted to zoom out Fred Van Vliet. Like we know he's an elite defensive player, damn it. But on the offensive end uh, he's improved massively from mid range his pull-up three right now uh, seems to be better on the year after having not great numbers uh, for his entire career. Um, if he is creating also better from the past, like, do you see that as an all-star player? Like Do you think he's improved enough offensively where on the ball, off the ball, he is an all-star?
1: I think he has been an all-star. I think the Raptors, if they get close to 500, if they get to above 500, I think they should have an all-star representing the team. And to be fair, even though, you know, we've talked about this, you know, on Twitter, in in our own private messages and via pieces, you know, Pascal, I thought, was turning the corner. That has been delayed. He's had injury problems. We're already 17 games into the season of a of a season that only has 72 games, perhaps less, depends on what happens with the second half and it, all the postponed games and stuff like that. Pascal, you know, 17 games in the season has not been the Raptors' best player, and 17 games is a meaningful chunk yeah. that Fred has been Toronto's most impactful best player on. If Ignore he continues but sp- Yeah, right. And uh if you look at Fred, what he's done the improvements he's made, and what he's been what he's been asked to do, and how he's responded to it with no drop off, perhaps even better defensive performances in years past. That's Toronto's all star to me. Even though he's not, and this is me saying like, hey, I'm wrong about players like all the time, and I have always been more pessimistic perhaps than Fred deserves, and perhaps we'll be into the future because I'm a dumbass. <laughs> but Fred. <laughs> you know, this, this isn't who I would have picked maybe ever, but he profiles as the Raptors all-star this year.
0: It's in it's incredible. And it's just, I mean, one thing that makes the Raptors so dangerous is they have a number of guys who, when they are at their best, the team becomes almost unbeatable. So when Fred makes his layups, right. When when the guy shoots like six for seven at the rim, The team is just going to win. That's just how those games go. They don't happen all that often. He remains a subpar shooter at the rim, despite throwing a little shade at media members in one session uh, earlier this year about criticizing his at-rim attempts. They remain not fantastic this year. Um, But also, you know, when Pascal Siakam drives, when he finishes, the Raptors become almost unbeatable. When Kyle shoots, excuse me, five for seven, you know, six for eight from three, The team becomes almost unbeatable. So there are all these, you know, things to unlock. Um, And, you know, they just haven't done that a ton this year, especially in concert. Uh, But Fred is one of those guys, whereas in past years, he was a floor raiser, you know, a guy who shot well from three, played good defense, but whether he did that or not, wouldn't really define whether the team won or lost. Now he is the ceiling raiser. Like if he does, if he does the things that he's not always good at, that's a win.
1: I find it the the shade thrown at media I think is great because I like that he knows and I like that he thinks he's good because you know the, the thing like <laughs> well yeah <laughs> well there's there's no that's the thing about Fred's finishing though right is he do, he doesn't have Kyrie Irving touch and English at the rim but Fred is has immaculate touch at the rim he's and very mixing? very good yeah he, he has incredible touch. It's just he's getting his shot swatted. He's getting, you know, and I honestly, maybe I'm one of the few people, I don't think he really deserves any more free throws than he's been getting. He doesn't do the correct things to draw free throws. He usually kind of gets up into that little ball and bounces off of people and then throws up a shot. It's kind of his style. As far as he he has the touch, he should be confident that when he puts something up there, he can make it go in. It's just that awareness of guys who are coming from, you know, the lateral help side or tracking him from behind, that's just being a little bit more aware and of his limitations with his size. I know that sucks. Maybe look at how Kyle collects the ball while on the move and then bumping the guy under the basket instead of, you know, Fred makes his contact. A little bit later when the guy has his feet collected so Fred can't move him as well. It's just, it's little things like that. If you watch Kyle when he's headed downhill, when the guy is stepping backwards, that's when Kyle makes the, the contact. And then that guy goes back to the stanchion and Kyle, you know, makes a layup that looks like an eight-year-old shot it with two feet on the ground and two hands on the ball. You're yeah. Like, How the hell did this happen? But Fred, the guy gets to the spot and then Fred makes the contact and bounces off. And that's actually a very big difference. And I understand that's not easy to apply in game because you can't make defenders do what you want all the time. And the more you can, as we've seen with Fred creating three-point shots, the better you become at something. But I'm looking for that to improve because he's very clearly in his interviews, in the way he conducts himself, in the way he plays on the court, an extremely intelligent man, an extremely intelligent player. So I'm just waiting for the
0: application. So, two things about that. One, it has to be Blake that he was crit- – I don't think he reads too many media members. He reads and Blake. Does, <laughs> so, Blake had just written a piece like the day before or two days before where he criticized Fred's finishing. So, I, I think it was actually, uh, you know, a wink-wink joke with Blake um, mm. when, he, when he talked about the finishing. Uh, also, keep in mind, Blake was the first media member to really develop a relationship with yeah. Fred.
1: Given the context, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, in that
0: rookie year. And also, I mean, just the team, like, I'm not going to name names, but, uh, you know, front office staff, Reed Blake. Um, You know, he is considered to be an expert within the sphere, not just among readers and media members.
1: Is he good? Um, Like Blake? Would you recommend his stuff? Oh, I don't know. Never heard of the guy. Yeah, Uh, not that familiar. I know he likes It's Always Sunny. (laughs)
0: Well, yeah, famously. So, so the other thing I wanted to say about Fred's finishing is uh, a neat thing he said the other night where they were asking about defending Brogdon. Brogdon, he basically said, I defend guys how I don't want to be defended, um, which is a, you know, a good quote. But also, like he is so good at defending guys on the gather, and he doesn't manipulate defenders in the inverse way while he is gathering. So he hits guys early when they are gathering. You know, he uses his lower body, his hips down. He keeps his arms, you know, on the ball at all times. He impedes the gather, hits them low while the ball's low to the ground where his strength really can impact the play. And if he did the opposite, if he hit guys early, you know, if he ripped through so that their arms couldn't bother his gather, if he did those things that he doesn't like, on offense, then you could actually see some of that some of that finishing go up in the same way that you describe. So, you know, he takes his defense or he takes uh, his how he doesn't want to be offended to impact his defense. Well he should also take his defense to impact his offense as well.
1: I that's that's a great point. And what an incredible quote from Fred as well. I just do the things that I don't like. Because typically that actually that works quite well if you're trying to be a defender. That is interesting, and that does speak to he should have it. It's somewhere in his brain that he knows the advantageous situations for himself to use just as to be, do the inverse. And defensively, that's the thing is guys like Andre Igadala, guys like Fred Van Vliet, who are so good at that little snap reach in yeah. that they – in their head, right? Because it's subconscious for them. That is not something there's the checklist, the hierarchy of their decision-making has been clearly laid out. They, they know exactly the, the check-throughs they run through. And they know when to slam the hand against the ball. They're so good at getting just ball. I, I marvel at Fred Van VanVleet on his digs, his ability to get the hand in the cookie jar and basically never get caught. And offensively, basically just never turn the ball over. There, there is something going on with Fred's brain that the way he reads the game, is, and ma- not at every level, but at certain levels, Fred Van Vliet, there's like two, three players who read certain aspects of the game better than him, but nobody else. He, he's a marvel to me, honestly. The, the way he's been able to play basketball and find success, I just, he, he deserves a lot of love for what he's been able to do. He, he intrigues me endlessly.
0: I think that's actually an interesting broader point is all of these guys are geniuses. Like we don't talk enough about how NBA players know so much better than us talking about them. Like Fred, it's obvious because the guy is so eloquent. He's just unbelievable at explicating things at a high level, but also a level that people understand. You know, not everyone is as intelligent a speaker as Fred, whether media or player or whatever. But the thing that people don't understand is analytics lets us think that we have this grasp of the game, you know, what works, what doesn't, uh, beyond some of the players, because the players don't do what is analytically inclined. Uh, But I just think that is such nonsense. The more I get to know some of these guys and listen to them, All of these guys know the game so much deeper than 99.9% of media ever will. And Fred is obviously at the peak of NBA players themselves, but just NBA players, man, they're so smart when it comes to basketball. It's crazy. I just can't get over how much they know the game and how much more all the rest of us have to learn to even be remotely similar. Well, I
1: think that's there are racist underpinnings to analytics and maybe maybe even overtones right maybe well, the it's use that of the apparent analytics. sorry yes to the use well it depends on who's you know what type of metric you're using and who implemented it and who decided to weigh things you know if you're okay anyway that's you know a a podcast for people who are way more in depth on the topic but i think it is it is interesting as you say for a person like myself I will, I will never, ever assert that I know better than a player or a coach. I will say my opinion, but I and I can think I'm correct, but I will never think that it's coming from a place that I have more information, I'm smarter. I just think this is what I see. This is what I want to happen. If I clamor, if I opine that, A, Pascal Siakam needs to be running the pick and roll, sure, I can look at the numbers and say, this is something you look for. But there's a million different little things going on on the floor that makes them think this isn't something we're going to do. And I understand why players dislike analytics. A lot of them do because analytics inform the decisions that are made where coaches come in and say, we're going to play this type of basketball or, you know, a Daryl Morey, for example. But the players are the ones doing it at the end of the day, always. And the players are the ones doing everything and just throwing these numbers at them and saying, I perceive you, and I see you, and I know your value on the court. It's bullshit. And yeah. I understand why there's value in it, of course, and you should be able, there's a bunch of people. Uh, we talked about Blake on this podcast, of course, but somebody who I think navigates the use of analytics well enough while respecting the player. Perfectly, some yeah, he
0: does it very well.
1: Yeah, and some people in media don't do that. I think that, and the amount of opportunities that have started to open up for people who are skipping the line of basketball because they're, you know, fluent in the language of analytics and the application of it, that leaves players, coaches feeling disaffected. And I think overwhelmingly has ushered in, you know, people who are white, who look like us to uh, kind of get into basketball and speak to players at a level that the players feel insulted, I think. And yeah, it's, it's tricky.
0: Which is a really like, you can see that when a guy like Danny green last year, you know, I was talking to him about numbers and he said, you know me, I'm not an analytics guy, but et cetera, et cetera. Well, the analytics love Danny green. Like those numbers all paint Danny green in about as impressive a light as any possible numbers could because his points per game, his minutes, his rebounds, none of that stuff loves Danny Green, the, the box score numbers. And yet the analytics love him. So why wouldn't he be an analytics guy? And that speaks to everything we're discussing. You see that all the time. NBA players who are beloved by analytics in turn despise those analytics. I just think that actually shows it's not unintelligence it's not lack of awareness it's actually much deeper awareness on those players level
1: mm-hmm. because you know if there's a number saying this thing happens but the player was on the court experiencing something why would they appeal to that number the numbers exactly. are good and there's 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 value in them but i i think people if you're just leaning on numbers and throwing out like r.a.p.m or raptor or PIPM, which, you know, is a really good metric, I think, from Jacob Goldstein. But if you're just throwing those out, I think that's a, that's a problem. And especially to undervalued players, seems like a miss. But okay. Agreed. Undervalued players, overvalued nice. players. There is something about being a role player on the Toronto Raptors that awards you fame. And, you know, in some cases, fortune. Depends on your contract situation. But <laughs> Yuta Watanabe, and Stanley Johnson, coming from two very different worlds as far as the basketball sphere. Stanley, a lottery pick who's kind of languished around and a guy who has said he's in LeBron's head, like delusions of grandeur at some points in this guy's career, to be quite honest, and has struggled. Yuta Watanabe trying to get in the back door. Both of them, at this point, finding utility as, you know, high-level defenders on the Raptors. What do you make of those two? Is it tenable for the Raptors to make room for both of them going forward, considering that you are limiting your offensive punch? But, you know, they've both been good. I think they've both deserved minutes.
0: I think it is tenable. Uh, I think that it's tenable just in terms of which rotations they're used in, though. So you know, neither of them are play finishers, both very good passers. But if you're going to use them, I think you need at least two of Fred Van Vliet, Pascal Siakam, Norman Powell, or Chris Boucher on the floor. And then it works, then it works, right? Then you can have guys who are less play finishers. You did that excellent piece last year, breaking the Raptors into, into categories, finishers, creators, and I think that can equally be used here. Wat Nabi, for example, alongside you know Malachi Flynn, Kyle Lowry, Aaron Baines, that's never going to work, because who's going to take the shot? You can pass as much as you want, but if someone's not going to take advantage of all those l- little advantages you've created, it doesn't do anything. When you have them alongside finishers, then it can work well. What do you think about that?
1: I think that's that's definitely the answer is they both clearly have valuable NBA skills. Oh, you yeah. have to find the way that they mix in with the team. You have to find the players that they play well with. I mean, if you only ever had players who just were positive every time they stepped on the court, your job would be really, really easy as a coach. But the reason why Nick Nurse is you know, paid a handsome salary is because he's supposed to figure out what lineups do what, and if there's anything that we're looking for him to do, it's find utility and value in using Yuda or Stanley in the correct ways. Have have you liked how he's used them so far, or has it left you wanting? What are your thoughts?
0: No, I've really liked it. I think the team is about, I'd say seventy-five, like just ballparking, three quarters of the way into defining the rotation. And so early on in the year, I actually disliked how the team used Stanley Johnson, but you have to remember that Nick nurse is not thinking one game. Like if Nick nurse chose one game and said, we have to win this, well, they'd probably win, right? Like, but that's just not how the team is looking at the season. It's about how can we build going forward? How can we make sure our understanding of the rotations, what works, what doesn't is at its best by the time we need to win games. And so when Nick Nurse, you know, for example, doesn't play Matt Thomas or when he doesn't play Paul Watson or when Utah Watanabe and Stanley Johnson and, you know, Malachi Flynn all get minutes at the same time, you have to understand this is Nick Nurse gathering information. What works, what doesn't, right? And so... At times I haven't been overjoyed with how Stanley Johnson was used. Those times are becoming less and less frequent, but I understand the value of those imperfect uses just as much as I understand the value of the perfect uses of Stanley Johnson, because the guy can ball. We can see that now, even if a lot of us including myself doubted him before the year and just seeing him being used now. So correctly is awesome. I mean, He is such a plus passer at his position. So the Raptors ran him at point guard all year last year. Now he's a secondary tertiary creator. He threw an awesome like fake ball, ball fake skip pass last night that had me out of my seat. Like finding those ways to use him better and better is what will make the Raptors better in the playoffs because they're not going to overpower teams like the Lakers and the Bucks. They need to win around the edges and Stanley Johnson so far is a win around the edge. Utah Watanabe could be, and I think they're searching for how to make him a win around the edge.
1: In my little in my head, I have a notepad that has a list of all the people who were correctly identifying that Stanley's best offensive, you know, attribute was his passing dating back to last year. And so anybody who was on the the bus early, I'm I'm very proud of them for noticing. I in my roles piece at the start of this year. Stanley came in as a finisher, and I said, if he's the guy he was last year, and he's you know, the, the he's used the same way, then he'll end up being a finisher because he's not going to have enough on-ball stuff. But I said, if he's the type of guy who knifes into the lane, drops off to a big once the defense collapses, and shoots competently, then he can get into the in-betweener role. And the in-betweener role is the same one that guys like Patrick McCaw and uh, DeAndre Bembry, Occupy, you know, and guys like Malachi Flynn, just depending on how, how much he spends time on ball. But Stanley, as you say, he's, uh, he's been a win. And I hope, I hope he continues to win because even though I think I'm a little bit lower on his defense than a lot of people right now, just because I think people are really, really high on his defense. And Did you see that block last so,
0: night? He fouled them, but it was a great oh, block. It's a get foul. out of here. That was Kyle Lowry verticality, but with freakish athleticism. That was an he, insane play. But he wasn't vertical. He, like, he he didn't meet Aaron
1: Holiday at a spot like he was – if you go watch it back, like, he covered a lot of ground in the air. Like, he, he might have been straight up, maybe, but he – like, he hit Aaron Holiday on the body and then whacked the hell out of the ball. And, yeah, but he covered a lot of the ground in air. It wasn't like – lowry gets to the spot jumps straight up like stanley covered a lot of ground in there but
0: i can see why the fun police is less high on his defense than everyone else
1: yeah that's yeah that's fair that's a fair comment but i mean it's it's a fun play a lot of people get away with you know fouls on really big blocks i'm i'm glad he has it in his bag that can go in the highlight reel which is fun
0: Generally, the more exciting the play, the less likely you'll be you'll be penalized if you foul someone, right?
1: And the more likely you'll be penalized for saying, uh, actually, that was a foul, which <laughs> I'm doing right now like an idiot. <laughs> but yes, anyway. And Yuta, I mean, really fun. I just, I think he, I don't know where he ranks on the Raptors as, you know, what type of, I think Yuta is a better defender than Stanley. Kill me if that's. I understand that by being no, a hot agree take. With that. Okay, cool. I'm, well, I'm glad then. But Stanley, as he currently stands, a, a better offensive player. Utah, I think that that shooting can come around. There's, I think, there's reason to believe he's going to shoot the three better than he has so far this year. Well, and Stanley shot we, like fifty percent from deep this year. Is he not a fifty percent shooter? Is that not something I, I can? I expect mean, if going that forward?
0: remains, then he will remain a better offensive player. But I agree, if Yuta's shooting does tilt, you know, t- five, 10% better than Stanley as it could, you know, just looking at the strokes, then I agree. He would then, then he could be a better offensive player, but as, as it stands, I completely agree with your, your rating of them.
1: Okay. So let's, let's talk Raptors overall. Then Kyle Lowry, ideally he has that toe thing going on, was using a toe knife, like Frank from it's always sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway. Kyle Lowry should be back and healthy at some point soon. Hopefully, Pascal is as well. What are your thoughts on this team? Because I assume we won't do another podcast for a little while. So, your thoughts on the team going forward. Let's say the next eight games, are you expecting any trends? Are you expecting something to come around? An
0: above 500 record? What are your thoughts? I think an above 500 record. I think this team as it is currently equipped is probably a five, six seed in the East. They need to make a trade for a starting center. Aaron Baines has improved significantly, but Mm -hmm. the best they can hope to do with their starters is break even. Toronto has not been a team that is successful when they break even with their starters. They're a team that needs to win their starter minutes and then break even with their bench to be really, really successful. You know Their bench-winning minutes has been part of their their success in past regular seasons, but that always runs into trouble in the playoffs when their starters lose their minutes. So, you know, as it currently stands, 5-6 seed, a um, lot of fun, really good team, not as talented as last year. Uh, but I do expect them to turn the record around. I do think their winning streak is much more indicative of who they are than the losing in the beginning of the season. Um, but if they get a starting center... You know, I know you are driver of the Rashawn Holmes bus. If they were to nab a Rashawn Holmes, a New Noel, you know, a defensive-minded lob threat, well, then I think the Raptors could actually be a a 3-4 seed and make noise in the playoffs.
1: Rashawn Holmes, I think, man, if a contender gets him, I'd be... You know, I'd I'd want to say that contender wins the chip. I think he's that underrated in the league. He's
0: way better than Nerland Snow.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Rashawn Holmes is way better than a lot of centers in the league. Like Marcus All, it's not crazy to me if Rashawn Holmes was better than Marcus All in if he went to the Lakers. Like that that wouldn't be crazy to me even in the playoffs. Like certainly he would be in the regular season. And the Lakers are definitely not looking for Rashawn Holmes. The the Sixers, they probably don't want to get Rashawn Holmes. The Nets, if they the Nets won't get Rashawn Holmes. And if they do, that's collusion at that point. But if the Nets got Rashawn Holmes, they'd win the chip. I, oh, without I'd put all my money on it. Rashawn Holmes kicks. Yeah, he he's incredible and one of the most underrated players in the league. Same with Sabonis. Sabonis is really underrated. Have you seen this guy is like maybe the most active player in the NBA? as far as touches, usage percentage, miles traveled like during the game. I've, I mean, Fred works hard, but holy smokes, Sabonis does so much work. And I don't know how long he was the reason that the Pacers were maybe a bit better than people thought, but it, it, it stopped being Oladipo for a little while, and Sabonis really, really came around. I, I, I do wonder when that, when that was, but yeah. Raptors as a 5-6 seed, I think sounds about right. That's where I've been for the most part. When I was really down, I was like, okay, they're going to be the 7th or 8th seed, but I'm not sure that's the case anymore. I was never fade for Cade, though. What, what do you make of fade for Cade, by the way?
0: I think it is, in theory, fun, but realistically so out of touch of, how, of like what the Raptors actually are. Just they like, you may dislike Fred because you think he's not tall enough, which if Fred was six foot seven, he would be like the greatest player of all time. Or you may, you know, not think Pascal Siakam is a legitimate superstar. You know, you may think Kyle Lowry's on his last legs in that case. Yeah. Maybe you think the Raptors need to rebuild through the draft, but you're just, you're wrong. Like the Raptors are too good as currently constructed. They will never lose enough games, no matter how hard they try. Like Nick Nurse could, could, you know, play his starters 30 minutes a game, could ride the bench in mismatched groups, and they would still not be as bad as some teams in the NBA. There's just way too much talent, way too much winning talent on the team. And if you try to lose, I mean, you just re-signed Fred Van Vliet and OG Ananobi and Pascal Siakam to monster deals. They're all hugely winning players. What does that say to those guys when you try to lose with all of them and Kyle on the roster? Like, it's nonsense. Fade for Cade is one of the silliest understandings of how the NBA works and how the Raptors are constructed that I could imagine.
1: Yeah, there's there's a very big disconnect between people who are literate with how these Raptors have been operating and how they'll continue to operate. And I think, you know, and I understand why people, you look at Cade Cunningham if you've watched he's amazing. this game. Yeah, he's incredible. And even... Like, the thing is, I have NBA 2K, right? And on one of the franchise modes I'm playing, I traded Kyle Lowry, and for an extra pick, I simmed the season, the Raptors ended up being bad, and I got uh, Evan Mobley and Jalen Suggs. And I was like, wow, could you, <laughs> could you imagine it <laughs> if the Raptors got Mobley and Jalen Suggs? That'd be super fun. But the road there is gruesome. You don't want to watch them lose game after game after game. And the sneak tank thing, I understand this year totally. It is, uh, there is an opportunity with no fans to sneak tank and because, you know, what the hell is this season anyway? Like, really, what the hell are they doing? They're trying to, what, play an all-star game now? That's insane, first of all, and I'll, I'll leave it there. But the, uh, they'll, they'll never be that bad, as you say. There's way too much talent on the roster. And when you have good contracts of good players, try and build a good team. It's it would be a complete waste to have years on contracts where you have Pascal Siakam, Fred, and OG at or below market value. You have to make you know you have to take advantage of those years, and that's uh yeah you don't want to be losing
0: a lot of games. I don't think. And like if somebody were to be hurt, you know, say Siakam's knee injury or you know his groin end up being serious injuries, you know, knock on wood. Of course, we hope not. Then maybe you reconstruct your understanding, you know, the same way the Spurs did when David Robinson went down, they got Tim Duncan, the Warriors after Steph Curry, et cetera, et cetera. That as currently constructed, these guys are healthy and they're incredible. Like, it just makes no sense. Okay,
1: Lewis, I think uh, think, uh, that's a podcast. How do you feel about that? I think that's the podcast, brother. Okay, well, then you know as you've done many of these with me. The floor is yours, mate. And uh, plug, plug, plug
0: away. Okay, so is this coming out today, the 26th of January?
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Okay. In that case, I have uh, an extremely, extremely exciting piece coming out tomorrow. Uh, I can't give more details, but it will be the highlight of my career to this point. Uh, So stay tuned. Uh, Very, very exciting news tomorrow.
1: I'm just saying, listener... Lewis has hits and they're coming. (laughs) Okay. Lewis,
0: thanks for coming on, man. I've enjoyed this immensely. Dude, I, I, every day without doing a podcast with you is a wasted day in my book. Should
1: we, should we release our daily podcast to the world that we've just been enjoying
0: (laughs) for ourselves? Is that what you're saying? Nah, we can't monetize our hobby to that extent.
1: Yeah. Just (laughs) provide a free newsletter. That requires hours of work.
0: Yeah, just do that.
1: Okay, listener. Uh, the free newsletter I'm talking about is <laughs> Minute Basketball. It's, uh, I think it's really good stuff if you're a fan of how Lewis and I see the game. Perhaps you can glean meaning and fun from the pieces we write in that newsletter. Or if you're a fan of the NBA, I think there'll be interesting nuggets in there for you as well. But Lewis,
0: thanks for coming on, man. Thank you, brother. Always so, so much fun.
1: All right, listener. That's it for you. That's it for me. That's it for Lewis. Thanks for coming in here. But on your way out, I hope you have a blessed day. And
0: whether you're listening in the morning or at night, not important. See ya.